what you see is there is no one to take our place. Yeah. Whether it's in Ukraine, there is no organization, there is no forum that is going to work well without us playing a leadership role. Whether we like it or not, in a sense, you don't have a choice about whether we will play a role. You only have a choice about whether we will play it well or badly. Welcome to the Global Minnesota Podcast, connecting, informing, and engaging Minnesota with the world. Our mission is to advance international understanding and engagement in every corner of the state. We do this with a variety of programs, including our public events, K-12 education programs, great decisions discussion groups, and professional exchanges. To learn more, visit our website at globalminnesota.org. I'm Nicholas Hayen, Marketing and Communications Manager for Global Minnesota. Earlier this year, Global Minnesota had the honor of welcoming the former U.S. Ambassador to Afghanistan, Algeria, and Bahrain, Ronald Newman, for an in-depth public conversation about the critical need to modernize the U.S. State Department. He provided an in-depth summary of the ways in which we can better support our diplomats abroad and the implications of this important work here at home. You can catch that recording in one of our previous podcast episodes or on the past events section of our website. So on today's episode, we're bringing back Ambassador Ronald Newman to continue the conversation about his diplomatic career, careers in the Foreign Service, and a behind-the-scenes look at life as an ambassador. So, Ambassador, welcome to the podcast. It's a big honor to have you here. Thanks very much. It was fun to be with you in person and good to be on the podcast. Yeah, and it was a really, really great presentation. I I urge everyone listening to it to go back and listen to it again. You, You do a great job of making what could be a very boring conversation about diplomatic bureaucracy, and you make it fun and exciting. Well, that's that's great to hear. Thank you. <laughs> Flattery will get you almost anything. Hey, that's pretty uh, pretty useful skill in the State Department, isn't it? Absolutely. Great. Uh, so then could you just briefly summarize your career a little bit and what really inspired you to join the Foreign Service in the first place? Well, in my case, I had a somewhat internationally oriented family. My father was an Austrian immigrant who came out of concentration camp, got to the States, uh, and eventually became an American citizen and a U.S. ambassador, in fact, a three-time ambassador. My mother was American way back, but actually born in India because my grandfather worked there in various capacities. And uh, so there there were always international influences in our house. And I got the bug pretty early. Uh, as far as my career, uh, aside from a, uh, a certain deviation to Vietnam as an infantry officer at the beginning, uh, my diplomatic career was largely spent in the Persian Gulf and Arabian Peninsula. Uh, I served in Iran before the revolution. Uh, there, I served in Yemen and the United Arab Emirates. I was ambassador to Algeria, ambassador in Bahrain. Went to Iraq during uh, right after the second Gulf War to help out. Uh, ended up staying there almost a year and a half. A lot of operations with the military, and then I, my reward for Iraq was to go to Afghanistan as ambassador. It's uh, certainly a reward in some sense, isn't it? Well, my British colleague in Algeria, when I was there, and that was during a very bloody period of insurgency, blanket death threat to all foreigners, and like. British colleague said to me, he said, Ron, when you get a reputation for being a troubleshooter, people will find more trouble for you to shoot at. Yeah, that sounds about right. I mean, you're good at it, right? So they'll just give you more tasks. Well, I guess either somebody thought I was good at it or, or there were no other takers. I'm not quite sure. 
We'll, we'll get into some of the differences of those posts in a bit, but I really wanted to hear what, what are some of your most interesting stories or inspiring stories from your career? Well, my first time in Afghanistan actually was uh, not not in the Foreign Service. I had a three and a half month delay between graduate school and the Army. So my wife and I went to visit my parents because my father was then ambassador in Afghanistan. Makes us one of only three father sons to run the same embassy. And those were peaceful days in Afghanistan. We traveled all over the country by uh, four-wheel drive and regular car. I went with a hunting party by jeep and then horse and then yak up into the high Pamirs along the Oxus Amudara River. So, uh, that was that was the first visit. Uh, you know, it's diplomatic life's funny. In, in some ways, I think some of the some of the things that are most important that you do are the negatives, the things that that don't happen, or the dumb ideas, or the crises that you <laughs> avert. They often don't make as good a make as good a story. We uh, we were pushing for more human rights in Algeria. It was a very bloody period. The government was partially open. There was quite a quite a vigorous press, but it was always under pressure. At one point, the government closed the newspaper. Uh, they were having a judicial inquiry. They said, which made it very made it very difficult to comment negatively because they would then say, "Well, you're interfering with our judicial process." Now, so and uh, and what what year was this? This was probably ninety five. Okay. Um, and so I I agreed with the several editors. They all published different papers, but they published in the same building. And I would go do a tour of the building, and I would stand in front of the door of the newspaper that had been closed, and they would all take pictures of me and put them in the paper. Um, so it would be a very clear sign that the United States cared, but not one the government could object to because I hadn't said anything. Mm -hmm. And uh, so the night before we were going to do this, I had the editors over, and I said to them, you know, I've got diplomatic immunity. Nothing's going to happen to me, but the government's going to know that we planned this thing together. And, uh, you know, this could end up being retaliation to you guys. Are you sure you want me to go ahead with this? And the answer was yes, because the visible support of the United States is so important to us that it's worth it. Um, that was a, you know, that was a kind of a, breath-stopping moment for me uh, that it you know it gave you a feeling of the importance of what the United States does you know there were other moments I mean I I did a lot to get a free trade agreement in Bahrain which wasn't the U.S. policy and changed it and that was two years of effort but it's a, a long and highly bureaucratic story so mm -hmm. probably enough just to note it yeah well and, and that that really speaks to as you mentioned in that event that tension between you know what the United States wants to to advocate for. What's it? What it wants to push for in a different country versus what that country itself is actually able to allow or actually does allow in its society. There have been areas where it was extremely important to change other people's cultures. Uh, you know, we stopped wives burning themselves in India. Uh, well, now we did. The British did. Um, so yeah. just us. But you know, I I would say that was a cultural imposition that was pretty definitely a good one. Yeah. Um, you know, but then we have things where, you know, you have to say, well, would we be okay with someone else teaching our people some of their values, which we might not like at all? 
or or is it just that our values are so unquestionably right everybody has to sign up to them? So you know, you you kind of prod, probe your way through this uh, this minefield and uh, do your best to hold up our values and still understand others. Then for people who are curious, what does kind of the day in the life of an ambassador usually look like? I mean, you are normal people at the end of the day, just, you know, living a life. Yep. So what does that look like? Well, this is like asking what's a normal day in the emergency room. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I mean, because everything is different. You're very responsive to events, uh, which can be anything from riots to press problems to Americans in trouble. You have the largest grant of authority in the U.S. government because you have authority over every federal employee who's in your country, except for some military, but every other agency. And there are something like 26, I think it was, agencies and cabinet departments represented in our embassies. So uh, you have ultimate authority over the conduct of policy, FBI, drug enforcement, customs, uh, the Commerce Department, all sorts of things. So you get a, a very big responsibility as well as taking care of, you know, your own people and being the, the place to go if you're an American and end up in trouble. So anything and everything that happens in any of those areas can land on your doorstep. And you never know when the day starts, which one you might have. There are, there are a lot of social events. Some of them can get a little tedious. Uh, some of them, you know, people could think, well, it's great going to cocktail parties all the time. Well, you know, if you do it seven <laughs> nights in a row, it ain't so great. Uh, the other thing is that for a diplomat, particularly an ambassador, these are working occasions. They're not necessarily, they're not an efficient way to do business, but sometimes they're the only way. So every, practically every party I would go to I would have certain things in mind. Who's coming? What do I need to know? What might they tell me? How do I get a few minutes, even if it's just three or four minutes with somebody interesting at the at the reception, who I might have to wait a week to see in an office setting uh, and ask them a question and get an answer uh, and maybe try the same question on two or three others to see whether the answers stack up. So, uh, it, it, you know, it's great. Now, sometimes a little odd. I remember coming out of a coming out of an evening at the British Embassy in Algeria. They had some visitors in, so they had a very, very nice, uh, typical diplomatic dinner with you know good food and candelabra and polished wood table. And then we walked out, and the courtyard was filled with armored vehicles and guys and guns all rushing around, organizing the convoys to take each of us back to our respective houses um wow because we were in the middle of war yeah it's it's wild to think that you could still have those types of you know receptions where everything seems normal and fancy but just right outside the building is you know we did a marine chaos, ball. we did a you know the marines have this tradition once a year they do a, a ball any every marine detachment and embassies and they they're the ones who guard our embassies overseas they try to do this algiers they usually these are not hotels, they're big fancy things. Well, Algiers, we couldn't go to any hotels. So I said, why don't we do it in the re ambassador's residence? So we moved out all the furniture and put in tables. Met my cook, who was a wonder, was prepared to do dinner for a hundred people, and that's what we had. Yeah. And I think it's interesting you point out that these aren't 
sure, there's they sound like elegant, wonderful cocktail parties, but it's work. Like you have to manage people and you know, yeah. these are the the rare opportunities you get to talk to some individuals. Um, and that's why this type of diplomacy is actually really important and kind of an understated uh, value that um, you're not just there to have fun. You're you're there to work, like you said, and it's oh, yeah. more than just just the the person to person communication. Yeah. You're also yeah. just managing the building of the embassy itself and all the little office pieces within it, or at least yeah. overseeing that process. Yeah. Oh, I mean, you do have some pretty good staff usually, and good de- guy, great deputies, several of whom became ambassadors later. But um, you know, I, just one point on this cocktail thing. A lot of places, people are a little guarded about what they want to say to you or will say to you on a telephone call or a Zoom. They don't know who's listening. Things are sensitive. So it puts a double weight on being able to get at them in a party like that because you couldn't just get the same answer by calling them up. Yeah. So you have quite an impressive career, of course, three-time ambassador um, and as a deputy assistant secretary of state. So what were some of the differences between representing the U.S. in those three major countries, Afghanistan, Algeria, and Bahrain? And secondly, how is the ambassador role? How is that different from the deputy assistant secretary role? Well, the countries were very different. The jobs were, I mean, a lot of overlap, but the jobs were different. Bahrain is a close friend. Uh, it's a non-NATO, major non-NATO ally. The Fifth Fleet is headquartered there. Mm-hmm. Uh, so they're they're very much a friend. King Hamad is a friend, and uh, we had an enormous amount to do with them on trade, on diplomacy. They, of course, have now signed the Abraham Accords with Israel, which is later, but they they had their own dealings again at that time. Uh, the uh, both the war start of the war in Afghanistan and the start of the second war in Iraq required support from countries in the Gulf. And so we were very involved with Bahrain in uh, gaining access to airfields and refueling. 20% of the uh, refueling operations for the Second Iraq War were flown out of bases in Bahrain. So they're a very important country to us. And uh, so I worked very closely both with Bahraini government and with the uh, Fifth Fleet Admiral in Command. Algeria, very different kind of relationship. They had for years been a leader of a non-aligned movement, and they tended to be kind of non-aligned against us a lot of times, uh, although they had been critical in getting our hostages out of Tehran uh, at that period. And then they'd had a, kind of an internal revolt and opened up a brief flirtation with democracy and then closed down to prevent an Islamist victory, or that was their view. Uh, and so this really savage internal conflict had kicked off. A lot of my job in Algeria was trying to see how this was playing out, not to buy into the idea that we had to choose a side between some crazy Islamists and a very thuggish government looking, probing for room to have a political solution and trying to report accurately, which was not always easy. Uh, so a very different kind of job. We were not as major a player in Algeria as we were in Bahrain. And then Afghanistan, I was there in the early, early period, 2005 to seven, where we were moving from a light footprint to um, really more into democracy and nation building, but with a very inadequate budget because the Iraq war was sucking up all the resources. 
So there we were, you know, had huge weight as the United States, but one had to use it carefully because, you know, you can press the government to make a lot of decisions. Then we're responsible for them and responsible for everything that goes wrong. Uh, yeah. And that's not always a bright idea. So very, very different roles. And then in each of those, the ambassador, after all, you don't make policy in the country, but you can definitely influence Washington. And there's a certain amount of policy you you kind of make by default. You know, you, something comes up and you tell Washington, well, I think we should do this and I'm going to do this unless you tell me no. And if they don't tell you no, you've just made a bit of policy. It might be a tiny yeah. bit, but you've made it. Um, when you're Deputy Assistant Secretary, you're a senior person, but not the very top of the train. You're what for Secretary Deputy. You're about the you're about the fifth rank down from the Secretary of State. Uh, you know, which is getting up there, but it it's there's a whole lot of people at that level as well. You can get carried away with this. Uh, so your responsibilities are broader in geographic sense. I was responsible for uh, what seven countries in the Arabian Peninsula and Libya, North well, North Africa, but not Egypt. So uh, Libya, Tunisia, Algeria, Morocco. There, so four or seven, eleven countries that uh, different offices that fell under my responsibility. So everything that involved those countries had some involvement with me, and sometimes big. For instance, we had a decided to bomb Iraq at one point and they weren't cooperating with the uh, nuclear inspectors. And so a lot of the planes that moved in for that operation came from out of area, had to be based in the areas I was responsible for. So I was doing the liaison with the Joint Chiefs for all of that deployment. All of those things would fall under the Deputy Assistant Secretary, but you're not responsible for for the, all the people issues that you had as an ambassador, uh, but you're responsible for coordinating with every agency of the U.S. government if they've got something that affects your countries that rises to a level where you ought to be sticking your nose in. So tell us then a little bit about the work you do for the American Academy of Diplomacy, and uh, if you have any advice for people who are curious about a career in the Foreign Service. Uh, absolutely. Well, let me do that. Let me do the advice part first. Uh, you know, there are a lot of different areas in which you can work overseas, not just the Foreign Service, but it it has its drawbacks. You move every few years. Uh, that sometimes can be hard on families. It has, uh, you know, it is a bureaucracy, although it's a, it's a gypsy existence with an institutional paycheck. And so one of its strengths is that if you don't like what you're doing, you know that in a couple of years, either you'll move or your boss will move, uh, or both. Yeah. So not every, you know, if you don't like something, it doesn't have to be a, a mind-blowing kind of situation. So against some of these drawbacks, and you may live in some unhealthy places in terms of climate or crime, so you have some drawbacks. Against that, I think you work on incredibly important stuff. You know, I was 37 years a diplomat, never once with everything else I might complain about, including even decisions sometimes, but never once did I go home and wonder if I what I was working on mattered. Um, yeah. And that's, uh, you know, that's a big piece of life satisfaction that you think what you're spending hours and hours on counts. And I think it does count. And, you know, 
in all kinds of in all kinds of ways. So I would say, you know, first of all, for those who are curious, um, learn about it. You know, there's some good books there. Uh, there's one by uh, Nicholas Kristof of America's Other Line of Defense. Not quite the title. I have to look that up, but there's. Uh, that called the ambassadors, I think, that goes through the career of five. And then for people who are really seriously interested about joining the Foreign Service, I recommend reading a small book called Inside a U.S. Embassy, because if you do get in past the test, it is um, required that you choose a what they call a cone, which is a professional specialization. And this little book, Inside a U.S. Embassy, that you could get on Amazon, uh, gives you a, a, a much more detailed sense of what these different specializations do. And so I recommend looking at that. So I would say to people who are interested, take the test. You know, if you don't pass it the first time, at least you're more familiar with it, you can come back and take it again. It's a long entry process. So don't, um, don't give up your day job until you know you have a reporting date. Uh, but yeah. it is, it's a fascinating career. And uh, well, I cornered a I cornered a diplomat once before I came in, and I'd I'd asked him every question I could think of, and he'd thrown in everything he could think of, and we got to that silence where you just beat the subject to death. And and then he turned to me and he said, "You know," he said, "Anywhere in life you eat a little crap, but in foreign service you eat it off crystal silver and in the best of company." Yeah, that doesn't sound so bad. Yeah. Yeah. So then, what is the American Academy of Diplomacy working uh, at yeah. to um, to yeah. help advance so the, that? The academy was started forty years ago. It was started by Henry Kissinger and Ellsworth Bunker, people you know, real titans of diplomacy. Uh, George Kennan, fairly famous name in diplomacy, was one of the founding members. And as it's evolved over the 40 years, it's still a very small organization. We're only about 300 members now, uh, but all members who have had uh, senior jobs, fairly distinguished jobs uh, in practical U.S. diplomacy. Not all career foreign service officers include some non-career political appointees, that is, some who had backgrounds in assistance, AID, uh, foreign commerce, but all at that sort of senior level. It has really two missions. One is talking to Americans about diplomacy, why it's important, uh, why it should be supported, what it is. And part of that mission is the program I came out to talk to people in Minnesota. Also, there's a podcast, American Diplomat, comes out once a week. A uh, great podcast about diplomatic life if people are interested and, and really quite amusing usually. There's another that's winding up, but uh, has 80 episodes out there called The General and the Ambassador about civil military cooperation in wars, but also in things like Arctic policy and Southern Command and smuggling. Yeah. Uh, so a lot, of, a lot of programs talking about why diplomacy is important. The other half of our work is talking, looking for improvements in American diplomacy. Some of that is studies, one of the differences, though, when a university finishes, publishes a study, they're done. With us, in some cases, we just transition to going to work to implement it. One of our big efforts the last several years was 
pushing to get diplomats to take a little more risk and get outside fortified embassies in dangerous places. It's not it's not that diplomats are afraid. It's that Washington is afraid uh, ever since Benghazi. It's politically embarrassing to get somebody yeah. killed. So uh, one of the things we needed to do for that was to change a law called the Accountability Review Board that had become a kind of a witch hunt proposition. We're going to find somebody responsible even if nobody did anything wrong was the way people were understanding the law. And so they were afraid of it. And uh, it took two years of effort and we got it changed, which is, you know, in this climate in Washington, getting a law changed, even a niche one for an outfit of 300 people is you know, not bad business. So yeah. uh, most recently, there's been a big report on the uh, major changes we think are needed for a fit 21st century diplomacy. And one of them involves better training of diplomats, which we're pushing with the Congress. And that's one of the things I want to talk to people about. The other is the idea of creating a diplomatic reserve corps. The State Department has never done a good job of being able to surge, and it can't because it has no extra people. It has no people, mm -hmm. in, no units in training. It has very few long-term education billets. And so anytime there's a crisis need, it has to pull people from other jobs, leave those jobs vacant, sometimes for very long periods. Uh, or even if it's not a war, uh, surging people to handle evacuations of Americans, to handle the Afghan, takes a cost to American diplomacy because everything else stays vacant, sometimes for years. Uh, yeah. So we're pushing for this idea of a reserve corps. And so that's what we're, that's the kind of thing we're engaged in right now. Yeah, and that reserve corps sounds especially interesting because um, maybe if you could just outline a little bit, it sounded like uh, roughly maybe a thousand individuals who would be who would be basically modeled after the National Guard or the yeah, National Guard but, Reserves, correct? So uh, relatively you've low investment. Well. But... You've been listening well. That's exactly the way uh, it would work. That one of the things it would do because this idea has been around before, but it's been in sort of well, keep a bunch of the old guys and gals when they retire, and then you can use, well, there's a lot of problems with that. So the idea here is, first of all, you need a detailed survey, and you have to really design what you need, what the military would call a table of organization and equipment, because some of the things you need in a crisis have nothing to do with being a senior diplomat. They may need, you may need contracting officers to handle chartering planes, you need consular officers to handle American citizens and know what their duties and responsibilities are. Uh, you may need political military officers to liaison with military, but not necessarily always at a senior level. So first year would be build out in detail this table of organization. That would mean for some of these skills, this doesn't have to be people that are already in the government or in the foreign services. This can be people in the private sector for many of these many of the technical skills, because you're, you're going to need communications support and other things. Um, then when you form the Corps, it would, like the National Guard, people would have a kind of monthly obligation uh, for training, weekend, probably most of it virtual, uh, and an obligation to spend a couple of weeks in-person training in the summer, because you need to keep people's skills up. Just because you knew how to do a job a year or two ago doesn't mean you 
continue to know how, especially with changes. Uh, and then like the National Guard, you would be required if called to mobilize. So it's not, you know, how would you like to work next summer and, uh, you know, filling consular section in Paris. This is, no, I'm sorry, this is, uh, you know, we need you in outer Mongolia on Wednesday and here are your tickets. And yeah. so you're, you, you, when you're needed, you go. And you're like the National Guard, your your uh, employer has a requirement to take you back so that you can do that without without being crazy. It would have a three-year term of, as we envision it, three-year term of enlistment and then renewable if both sides agree and want to. So it it's a very organized, structured thing. We see it building over about five years to a, a total, as you said, of a thousand people. And I think it's important to recognize because some people say, oh my God, a thousand people and this is a lot. How much money is this going to cost? And what's this going to go to the U.S.? The cost of getting all this done and having this incredible additional capacity would be about half the cost of one F-35 fighter. And we certainly have a couple of those around for, yeah. for understandable reasons. But um, yeah, the, the actual amount of money is... Uh, quite low. And um, of course, worth repeating again that the entire foreign affairs budget is less than 1% of the federal budget in the first place. Absolutely. Yeah, I think that's a, that's a very exciting, interesting program. Um, I think you're going to have a lot more than a thousand people interested in that. Uh, just talking to a few people who are at that uh, discussion, you, you've got at least a dozen who, who would already sign up uh, just for Minnesota after one conversation. Well, all we got to do is get the Congress to pass the bill. Um and uh, it'll be a lift because this is a very difficult political environment. People are concerned about, you know, all kinds of things, including monetary. But I think they need to look broadly at some of the problems we've got right now. Uh, you know, if you want to get a passport, it's what, five, six months wait. There were reasons for that. COVID shut everything down. It, people have to have security clearances. They're trying to hire new people, but it's very timely. If you had this reserve corps, you could mobilize them to do passport issuances to fill the gap until you get the, the uh, backlog down and people on board. You've got huge visa lines uh, overseas, and people might say, well, why do I care about whether those foreigners can get a visa or not? But, you know, if you're a rich Indian businessman who wants to take his family to the States and spend a lot of money in our economy uh, or send their kids to school here, and, uh, you know, that's thousands of dollars in every state, millions of dollars in every state in the nation uh, in foreign education. And it's, well, sure, we'd be happy to look at your visa application. You know, here's your appointment in a year. Now, this is costing us <laughs> real money and real friends uh, as people decide they'll you know, take their vacation in Australia and send their kid to Great Britain. So uh, the, having this reserve court to fill these kind of gaps, as well as wars, where we have never done well, we, uh, we had the big so-called big surge in Afghanistan. I was on one of my many repeat trips to Afghanistan after I retired. I remember one division commander saying to me rather scornfully, I, I feel the civilian surge lapping at my ankles. Uh, <laughs> he was yeah. not he was not real impressed by what we could generate. 
Yeah, well, you've uh, hinted at it a little bit, but maybe let's just, uh, as a final question, go into a little bit more detail of why a modern American diplomatic corps is so important here at home. You know, why why is engagement and leadership in the world so important uh, overall? To begin with, it affects the welfare of every American. Not, I mean, certainly immediately those who go overseas that need help, but huge numbers of jobs uh, depend on foreign commerce. I, I was looking at the statistics for Minnesota before I was up. It's about 25 billion a year in Minnesota's economy in foreign exports. And 25, wow. and 25, isn't that, I think, about 20% of the total? Of the it's, total? About, it's about 20% of Minnesota's yeah. economy. And that happens because we have a comparatively stable world in a lot of places and because of trade policies. So a huge amount of American well-being depends on a stable world and stable commercial ties. And one of the things you see is that America is condemned to lead. I don't know that any major power has ever been less interested in leadership than the United States, but you know we're sort of condemned to it because there, what you see is there is no one to take our place. Uh, yeah. Whether it's in Ukraine, whether it's in, there's, there is no organization, there is no forum that is going to work well without us playing a leadership role, whether we like it or not. But in a sense, you don't have a choice about whether we will play a role. You only have a choice about whether we will play it well or badly. But not playing it will also lead to uh, consequences for the United States. So you either have a, a policy, the policies that play well, but policies have to be executed by somebody. You know, people go to a, whether it's climate change you care about or trade, you see a big meeting and people come out of it with a resolution or a policy or a treaty sometimes. Well, that represents thousands of hours of work by diplomats and thousands of hours by people in different embassies with individual countries. And then the leaders come together and maybe they'll hammer out the last 1% that's difficult and sign. But having a quality diplomacy that understands the issues and is able to manage these complex of things that concern Americans, uh, and that can be from war to standards on a product, because if you're, if you're not paying attention to standards, the Europeans will manage to put everything on a metric scale that doesn't quite fit inches and everything you're building in the United States suddenly doesn't fit the standards of all your best market. So all this stuff's important. Yeah, you you need to have a seat at the table because if you don't, someone else will, and they won't necessarily share your interests. And that's why we need diplomats at the table. Absolutely. I mean, we saw this with the Trans-Pacific Partnership that was condemned by President Trump, and in the end, even Secretary Clinton, when she was campaigning, was walking away from it. Well, we spent years pulling that together, keep China out, influence other states. When we pulled out of that, 11 other nations signed up, did it anyway, but 
jettisoned over the side provisions about protecting intellectual property and a number of other things that we'd spent a long time operating. So you didn't, I think it's a good example, even if you don't like that agreement, of if you don't do it, it gets done anyway, but it gets done differently and in a way that is you know, less helpful or even harmful to the United States. And by the way, we have not managed to repair that problem with any bilateral treaties with any of those nations, even though some of them are very close friends. Yeah, and in the end, didn't China end up signing on to that? Oh, China, yeah, China, signed, China has now signed up. China's in. Yeah, so it's China's the, in, the exact opposite thing we wanted to have happen. Happened. Yeah, China's in, we're out, and the things we really wanted in the agreement for protecting some of our interests, some of them are not there anymore. All right. Well, Ambassador Ronald Newman, thank you again so much for joining today for all your work to represent the United States on the world stage. Thank you very much for having me. I appreciated the chance to talk at such length. Was there anything else you wanted to cover before we go? No, just it was a pleasure to talk to you, Nick. Excellent. Thank you again. Really appreciate your time today. My pleasure. That's all the time we have today. You can catch the full event recording of Ambassador Newman's discussion at globalminnesota.org. Thanks, as always, to all the members of Global Minnesota who make our programs possible. Be sure to check out our website at globalminnesota.org to find information about upcoming events, learn more about our international programs, and sign up for our weekly newsletters. And don't forget to subscribe to this podcast if you haven't already, so you can hear untold stories of international connections each month and catch recordings of our public events. Thanks for listening, and we'll talk to you soon.